0: Chapter 10 of Wheeland, or The Transformation, an American tale by Charles Brockton Brown. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10. Order could not readily be introduced into my thoughts. The voice still rung in my ears. Every accent that was uttered by Carwin was fresh in my remembrance. His unwelcome approach, the recognition of his person, his hasty departure, produced a complex impression on my mind, which no words can delineate. I strove to give a slower motion to my thoughts, and to regulate a confusion which became painful, but my efforts were nugatory. I covered my eyes with my hand, and sat, I know not how long, without power to arrange or utter my conceptions. I had remained for hours, as I believed, in absolute solitude. No thought of personal danger had molested my tranquillity. I had made no preparation for defence. What was it that suggested the design of perusing my father's manuscript? If, instead of this, I had retired to bed and to sleep, to what fate might I not have been reserved? The ruffian, who must almost have suppressed his breathing to screen himself from discovery, would have noticed this signal, and I should have awakened only to perish with affright and to abhor myself. Could I have remained unconscious of my danger? Could I have tranquilly slept in the midst of so deadly a snare? And who is he that threatened to destroy me? By what means could he hide himself in this closet? Surely he is gifted with supernatural power. Such is the enemy of whose attempts I was forewarned. Daily I had seen him and conversed with him. Nothing could be discerned through the impenetrable veil of his duplicity. When busied in conjectures as to the author of the evil that was threatened, my mind did not light for a moment upon his image. Yet has he not avowed himself my enemy? Why should he be here if he had not meditated evil? He confesses that this has been his second attempt. What was the scene of his former conspiracy? Was it not he whose whispers betrayed him? Am I deceived, or was there not a faint resemblance between the voice of this man and that which talked of grasping my throat and extinguishing my life in a moment? Then he had a colleague in his crime. Now he is alone. Then death was the scope of his thoughts, now an injury unspeakably more dreadful. How thankful I should be to the power that has interposed to save me! that power is invisible it is subject to the cognizance of one of my senses what are the means that will inform me of what nature it is he has set himself to counterwork the machinations of this man who had menaced destruction to all that is dear to me and whose cunning had surmounted every human impediment there was none to rescue me from his grasp my rashness even hastened the completion of his scheme and precluded him from the benefits of deliberation i had robbed him of the power to repent and forbear had I been apprised of the danger, I should have regarded my conduct as the means of rendering my escape from it impossible. Such, likewise, seemed to have been the fears of my invisible protector. Else why that startling entreaty to refrain from opening the closet? By what insplicable infatuation was I compelled to proceed? Yet my conduct was wise. Carwin, unable to comprehend my folly, ascribed my behavior to my knowledge. He conceived himself previously detected, and such detection being possible to flow only from my heavenly friend and his enemy his fears acquired additional strength he is apprised of the nature and intentions of this being perhaps he is a human agent yet on that supposition his achievements are incredible why should i be selected as the object of his care or if a mere mortal should i not recognize some one whom benefits imparted and received had prompted to love me what were the limits and duration of his guardianship was the genius of my birth entrusted to divine benignity with this province? Are human faculties adequate to receive stronger proofs of the existence of unfettered and beneficent intelligences than I have received? But who is this man's coadjutor? The voice that acknowledged an alliance and treachery with Carwin warned me to avoid the summer-house. He assured me that there only my safety was endangered. His assurance, as it now appears, was fallacious. Was there not deceit in his admonition? was his compact really annulled some purpose was perhaps to be accomplished by preventing my future visits to that spot why was i enjoined silence to others on the subject of this admonition unless it were for some unauthorized and guilty purpose no one but myself was accustomed to visit it backward it was hidden from distant view by the rock and in front it was screened from all examination by creeping plants and the branches of cedars what recess could be more propitious to secrecy the spirit which haunted it formerly was pure and rapturous it was a fane sacred to the memory of infantile days and to blissful imaginations of the future what a gloomy reverse had succeeded since the ominous arrival of this stranger now perhaps it is the scene of his meditations purposes fraught with horror that shun the light and contemplate the pollution of innocence are here engendered and fostered and reared to maturity such were the ideas that during the night were tumultuously revolved by me i reviewed every conversation in which carwin had borne a part i studied to discover the true inferences deducible from his deportment and words with regard to his former adventures and actual views i pondered on the comments which he made on the revelation which i had given of the closet dialogue no new ideas suggested themselves in the course of this review my expectation had from the first been disappointed on the small degree of surprise which this narrative excited in him he never explicitly declared his opinion as to the nature of those voices, or decided whether they were real or visionary. He recommended no measures of caution or prevention. But what measures were now to be taken? Was the danger which threatened me at an end? Had I nothing more to fear? I was lonely, and without means of defense, I could not calculate the motives and regulate the footsteps of this person. What certainty was there that he would not reassume his purposes, and swiftly return to the execution of them? This idea covered me once more with dismay. How deeply did I regret the solitude in which I was placed, and how ardently did I desire the return of day! But neither of these inconveniencies were susceptible of remedy. At first it occurred to me to summon my servant, and make her spend the night in my chamber, but the inefficacy of this expedient to enhance my safety was easily seen. Once I resolved to leave the house, and retire to my brother's, but was deterred by reflecting on the unseasonableness of the hour, on the alarm which my arrival, and the account which I should be obliged to give, might occasion, and on the danger to which I might expose myself in the way thither, I began, likewise, to consider Carwin's return to molest me as exceedingly improbable. He had relinquished of his own accord his design, and departed without compulsion. Surely, said I, there was omnipotence in the cause that changed the views of a man like Carwin. The divinity that shielded me from his attempts will take suitable care of my future safety. Thus to yield to my fears is to deserve that they should be real. Scarcely had I uttered these words when my attention was startled by the sound of footsteps. They denoted someone stepping into the piazza in front of my house. My newborn confidence was extinguished in a moment. Carwin, I thought, had repented his departure and was hastily returning. The possibility that his return was prompted by intentions consistent with my safety found no place in my mind. Images of violation and murder assailed me anew, and the terrors which succeeded almost incapacitated me from taking any measures for my defense. It was an impulse of which I was scarcely conscious that made me fasten the lock and draw the bolts of my chamber door. Having done this, I threw myself on a seat, for I trembled to a degree which disabled me from standing and my soul was so perfectly absorbed in the act of listening that almost the vital motions were stopped the door below creaked on its hinges it was not again thrust to but appeared to remain open footsteps entered traversed the entry and began to mount the stairs how i detested the folly of not pursuing the man when he withdrew and bolting after him the outer door might he not conceive this omission to be a proof that my angel had deserted me and be thereby fortified in guilt Every step on the stairs, which brought him nearer to my chamber, added vigor to my desperation. The evil with which I was menaced was to be at any rate eluded. How little did I preconceive the conduct which, in an exigence like this, I should be prone to adopt! You will suppose that deliberation and despair would have suggested the same course of action, and that I should have, unhesitatingly, resorted to the best means of personal defense within my power. A penknife lay open upon my table. I remember that it was there, and seized it, for what purpose you will scarcely inquire. It will be immediately supposed that I meant it for my last refuge, and that if all other means should fail, I should plunge it into the heart of my ravisher. I have lost all faith in the steadfastness of human resolves. It was thus that in periods of calm I had determined to act. No cowardice had been held by me in greater abhorrence than that which prompted an injured female to destroy, not her injurer ere the injury was perpetrated, but herself when it was without remedy yet now this penknife appeared to me of no other use than to baffle my assailant and prevent the crime by destroying myself to deliberate at such a time was impossible but among the tumultuous suggestions of the moment i do not recollect that it once occurred to me to use it as an instrument of direct defence the steps had now reached the second floor every footfall accelerated the completion without augmenting the certainty of evil the consciousness that the door was fast now that nothing but that was interposed between me and danger was a source of some consolation. I cast my eye towards the window. This, likewise, was a new suggestion. If the door should give way, it was my sudden resolution to throw myself from the window. Its height from the ground, which was covered beneath by a brick pavement, would ensure my destruction. But I thought not of that. When opposite to my door, the footsteps ceased. Was he listening whether my fears were allayed, and my caution were asleep? Did he hope to take me by surprise? yet if so why did he allow so many noisy signals to betray his approach presently the steps were again heard to approach the door A hand was laid upon the lock and the latch pulled back did he imagine it possible that i should fail to secure the door a slight effort was made to push it open as if all bolts being withdrawn a slight effort only was required i no sooner perceived this than i moved swiftly towards the window carwin's frame might be said to be all muscle his strength and activity had appeared, in various instances, to be prodigious. A slight exertion of his force would demolish the door. Would not that exertion be made? Too surely it would. But at the same moment that this obstacle should yield, and he should enter the apartment, my determination was formed to leap from the window. My senses were still bound to this object. I gazed at the door in momentary expectation that the assault would be made. The pause continued. The person without was irresolute and motionless. Suddenly, it occurred to me that carwin might conceive me to have fled that i had not betaken myself to flight was indeed the least probable of all conclusions in this persuasion he must have been confirmed on finding the lower door unfastened and the chamber door locked was it not wise to foster this persuasion should i maintain deep silence this in addition to other circumstances might encourage the belief and he would once more depart every new reflection added plausibility to this reasoning i was presently more strongly enforced when I noticed footsteps withdrawing from the door. The blood once more flowed back to my heart, and a dawn of exultation began to rise. But my joy was short lived. Instead of descending the stairs, he passed to the door of the opposite chamber, opened it, and having entered, shut it after him with a violence that shook the house. How was I to interpret this circumstance? For what end could he have entered this chamber? Did the violence with which he closed the door testify the depth of his vexation? This room was usually occupied by Pliel. Was Carwin aware of his absence on this night? Could he be suspected of a design so sordid as pillage? If this were his view, there were no means in my power to frustrate it. It behooved me to seize the first opportunity to escape. But if my escape were supposed by my enemy to have been already effected, no asylum was more secure than the present. How could my passage from the house be accomplished without noises that might incite him to pursue me? utterly at a loss to account for his going into pleyel's chamber i waited in instant expectation of hearing him come forth all however was profoundly still i listened in vain for a considerable period to catch the sound of the door when it should again be opened there was no other avenue by which he could escape but a door which led into the girl's chamber would any evil from this quarter befall the girl hence arose a new train of apprehensions they merely added to the turbulence and agony of my reflections whatever evil impended over her I had no power to avert it. Seclusion and silence were the only means of saving myself from the perils of this fatal night. What solemn vows did I put up, that if I should once more behold the light of day, I would never trust myself again within the threshold of this dwelling? Minute lingered after minute, but no token was given that Carwin had returned to the passage. What, I again asked, could detain him in this room? Was it possible that he had returned, and glided, unperceived, away? I was speedily aware of the difficulty that attended an enterprise like this, and yet, as if by that means I were capable of gaining any information on that head, I cast anxious looks from the window. The object that first attracted my attention was an human figure standing on the edge of the bank. Perhaps my penetration was assisted by my hopes. Be that as it will, the figure of Carwin was clearly distinguishable. From the obscurity of my station it was impossible that I should be discerned by him. And yet he scarcely suffered me to catch a glimpse of him. He turned and went down the steep, which in this part was not difficult to be scaled. My conjecture then had been right. Carwin had softly opened the door, descended the stairs, and issued forth. That I should not have overheard his steps was only less incredible than that my eyes had deceived me. But what was now to be done? The house was at length delivered from this detested inmate. By one avenue might he again re-enter it. Was it not wise to bar the lower door? Perhaps he had gone out by the kitchen door. For this end, he must have passed through Judith's chamber, these entrances being closed and bolted, as great security was gained as was compatible with my lonely condition. The propriety of these measures was too manifest not to make me struggle successfully with my fears. Yet I opened my own door with the utmost caution, and descended as if I were afraid that Carwin had been still immured in Plyle's chamber. The outer door was ajar. I shut with trembling eagerness, and drew every bolt that appended to it. I then passed with light and less cautious steps through the parlor, but was surprised to discover that the kitchen door was secure. I was compelled to acquiesce in the first conjecture that Carwin had escaped through the entry. My heart was now somewhat eased of the load of apprehension. I returned once more to my chamber, the door of which I was careful to lock. It was no time to think of repose. The moonlight began already to fade before the light of the day. The approach of morning was betokened by the usual signals i mused upon the events of this night and determined to take up my abode henceforth at my brother's whether i should inform him of what had happened was a question which seemed to demand some consideration my safety unquestionably required that i should abandon my present habitation as my thoughts began to flow with fewer impediments the image of pleyel and the dubiousness of his condition again recurred to me i again ran over the possible causes of his absence on the preceding day my mind was attuned to melancholy I dwelt with an obstinacy for which I could not account on the idea of his death. I painted to myself his struggles with the billows and his last appearance. I imagined myself a midnight wanderer on the shore, and to have stumbled on his corpse, which the tide had cast up. These dreary images affect me even to tears. I endeavored not to restrain them. They imparted a relief which I had not anticipated. The more copiously they flowed, the more did my general sensations appear to subside into calm and a certain restlessness give way to repose perhaps relieved by this effusion the slumber so much wanted might have stolen on my senses had there been no new cause of alarm end of chapter 10